So this is where a theologian and a text scholar, I think... I feel like we, we should have a song. We might. We might, We should probably have many songs. <laughs> I don't know which one mine... Mine would be Wilco's Theologians. Theologians don't know nothing about my soul. One of my favorites. Wait, is that a joke? No, it's a song. Oh, there's really a yeah. song? Theologians don't know nothing about my soul. Wilco wrote a song about theologians? They sure did. Damn. Yeah, that's pretty neat. What yes. would your song be? I don't have a clue, but I was thinking like the theologian, the theologian and the tech scholar can be friends from Oklahoma. And I was thinking of Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dan. I'm B. And this is God for Grownups. And our topic for today is favorite book or text in the Bible. Where do we start? Um, well, you had wanted to ask the question of our favorite testament and I felt like my choice would be easy, but right. what would yours? Right. What it would you... be it would be a pretty big surprise <laughs> if, if at I this said... point you said actually it's the Christian scriptures. Yeah, New Testament, <laughs> loving it. Yeah. Especially all that stuff about Jews and and. Uh, and oh yeah, stuff. I'm That's sure good. Matthew and the Gospel of John would be yeah. right at the at It'd the be top. Totally. Yeah. Totally at the top. Um, Okay, so I'm supposed to go first. And here's the deal. I was thinking about this in preparation for hanging out today. And I realized that there are like categories of favorite texts. So that, for example, I think Genesis 22 is a marvelous form of a short story. It is an almost ideal short story. So much is achieved in that one chapter, and actually not even the full chapter. And the audience is implied, and I love that when the readers are implied, because we know what's about to happen, and we have reason to believe Isaac doesn't know what's about to happen. This is the story of the binding of Isaac and Abraham is given instructions to sacrifice his son and offer him as a burnt offering. And he goes to do it. And the entire text is completely screwing with the reader because their dialogue is my father, my son, my father, my son. And whenever Isaac addresses his father, Abraham says, Hineni, my favorite word in the Bible, right? Hineni means here Mine I too. am. Interesting. Is it really? Right. Totally favorite. Are you serious? No, I have oh. no idea. Never heard the word. <laughs> it means here I am, but in a more than like present calling role, but in a um, being completely spiritually, emotionally, mentally there in that moment with somebody else fully showing up. And that's how Abraham answers Isaac. And that's how the patriarchs answer God. They answer God by saying, here I am. Yes. We have a song in the Lutheran church that goes... Here I am, Lord. Is it I, Lord? I wonder if that, it must be taken from those, those accounts. I would guess. Yeah. I would guess. So you like the showing up part? Is that, is that yeah. what? Because when you say Genesis 22 is among your favorites, I would have, I would have never guessed that. Well, you know, I'm all about the dark texts, right? Right. So a yeah. text that borders on human sacrifice. You're yeah. Like, I'm there. I'm there. And also I, I am, I read it as a big game of chicken. For those of you not familiar with chicken, it's And for when... those of you who can't see this conversation, the most bewildered look <laughs> just appeared on my face. When two people drive at each other really fast, yes. and the first one to flinch and drive out of the way loses? Yes. Okay. 
So this, by the way, coming from a woman who's been in multiple car accidents. Hey, the most recent one was totally not so, my fault. So now it was I, the Tesla. Now I understand. It was understand. Tesla's fault. Now I understand why you've been playing chicken. I've been totally playing chicken in the no, streets of Seattle. It's listen, a great place to I play chicken. I have a chicken. lot on my mind all the time, and you know, I for what the kids I, at home, how many car accidents have you been in? Just, just curious. I don't know. Fifteen? No. That's too low an estimate. I can tell you my first accident, I was like 15 years old. Uh, okay, so that's a year before you're supposed to be driving. Well, in Idaho, you could get your license at 14. Okay. I don't know if you can now, right. but you could. Okay. And then my most Which recent one. Which was obviously one, a mistake in your case. I know, they totally, and I had the entire cheerleading squad in my car. Not the entire one, actually, half of the JV cheerleading squad. And so I hit the guy on a bike. It was a guy on a bike. What kind of car are you driving that you can get half the cheerleading squad into? I don't remember, it's but like it was a Volkswagen. It was my parents' These car. Are clowns? It was like a Chevy Celebrity or something. I okay. don't know. Right. And everyone was crowded in there the way teenagers do, right? Uh -huh. And I hit a guy on a bike, okay. and the doors open, and these cheerleaders pour out screaming, and it looked like a Fellini movie. <laughs> you hit a guy on a bike? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Where do you go from there? Well, um, have you? I, I called my dad and he came down to help deal with the insurance and stuff. And I came home after school that day and I thought I'd be in trouble. And they were in the kitchen laughing. They were my in the parents kitchen laughing. were laughing. Wow. Yeah. The guy was okay. Okay. Bike was Good. screwed. I think that's kind of, uh, that's an important element of the story. Although he was killed two years later in a drive-by shooting. That's weird. I know. It wasn't yeah. my fault. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. So, so back to the game of chicken. Oh, God says to Abraham... Take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering up there where I'm going to show you. And Abraham says, okay, like, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this. And he sets out to do it. And there's so much buildup in the story because we're walking and walking and we know what's going to happen and they're talking and are they hiding it from each other? Does Isaac know what's going to happen? And we get up there and Abraham's going to do it and God flinches. God flinches and sends the idea, sends down the idea. It says through an angel, but then the fact is that sometimes the angels also represent God directly. It's very confusing. Right, that anyway. they're direct or what? That the, they're expressions of God's they are. presence. See, that was very nicely stated, better than I did. Well, that that's not that's not mine. That comes from Richard Elliott Friedman, one of my favorite Hebrew Bible scholars. But he talks about that ambiguity in terms of yeah. it being an expression of God's presence rather than separate beings. Rather than a separate being, yeah. And I'm, what I'm talking about, I got from David Blumenthal. Interesting. So, so now we're scholar competing. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, mine I can beat up yours. I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think in a fair My fight, scholar's Richard older Elliot, than yours. Richard so. Elliott Friedman can beat your scholar. Uh, if he's younger. Well. So, um, and God flinches. Don't do it. And the angel calling out twice might be because Abraham was like, damn it, I'm going to do this. Right? Abraham, Abraham, stop it. And what does Abraham get for winning? He gets the ultimate blessing, the ultimate promise. God swears by God's self. Only time in the Bible. God swears by God's self. Not by myself, I swear, I will give you the following things. Wow. And I they would... never talk again. And also Isaac and Abraham never talk again. Can you imagine from Isaac's perspective? Well, that's why there's names of God for each of the patriarchs. Um, and the one for Abraham is Magain Avraham, the shield of Abraham, and Abir Yaakov, the mighty one of Jacob. And it's Pachad Yitzchak, the terror of Isaac. I can see where that would be 
a favorite text. The the, really? the momentum. Oh yeah. The, yeah, and I I I've often heard that text understood as a kind of repudiation of human sacrifice in the ancient world. Do you think that's uh, too generous an interpretation? I don't think it's that at all. What do you think it is? I think Abraham was rewarded because he was going to do it. So this isn't about human sacrifice at all. This is about Abraham's uh, faith? Um, it's definitely not saying don't do human sacrifice. So do you? is there evidence that in the Hebrew Bible that human sacrifice goes back in the, in the Jewish tradition? Anywhere? In the Israelite tradition, yes. I think the evidence is pretty clear. Um, John Levinson traces it in The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. He has a chapter called Child Sacrifice, colon, Deviation or Norm. And um, he lists all the biblical texts that appear to be pointing towards child sacrifice. Those that indicate it would have occurred, and those that say don't do it, which indicates it occurred. So the the reality of... of Human sacrifice is a kind of unspoken reality, perhaps, in some of the according to some of these texts. Yeah, what Levinson's saying, and it was also um, throughout the ancient Near East. The Israelites would not have been uniquely horrible in this regard, but there comes a point in the biblical texts where it is no longer desired, and where there is specific polemic against it, saying, "Stop doing that." As the religion evolved, it evolved away from that practice. Why do you think it evolved away? I, I don't want to get too much off topic, but it's it's kind of funny to, to start a conversation on favorite book or text or passage in the Bible, and 10 minutes in, we're talking about human sacrifice. That's not weird for us. That is not. That's true. That's no. par for the course. Yeah. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering, why do you think the Jewish religion evolved and I said Jewish religion. You you made a distinction between yeah. Jewish and Israelite, which might be helpful for, for folks to know. Well, the word Jew is um, a matter of some debate, and people like Shia Cohen have written about it. The Israelite identity was an ethnic geographic identity, and we don't have the usage of the word Jew the way we mean it until 2nd or 3rd century BCE, and then the word is Udayoi. Jews. And we have a colleague who really doesn't want it to be Jews because of the polemic against them in the New Testament. So he's trying to actually sanitize it. Um, Arguing that it's a geographical, yeah, that it's a region, uh, a regional name for people, but not, not the name for the people as such. Right. Yeah. But for around that time, it becomes ethnic, geographic, religious, all of these different elements that more closely match what we mean. Um, Judaism has its roots in biblical religion, but the Judaism of today is so radically different from biblical religion that most people don't call that Judaism. They call it... Israelite religion. Israelite religion. Yeah. And uh, to my other question about evolving away from the, the possibility of human sacrifice, why do you think it is that the Israelite religion moved in that direction? I mean, there are lots of theories about that. Among them, we have the centralization around the worship of the one deity in a capital center. Um, Jerusalem requires that people separate from kinship cults, separate from worshiping other gods that would require the sacrifice all of those things, and, and moving towards this um, 
single place with its single deity weakens a lot of the family religion connections uh, and therefore necessitates a different way of relating to the deity, which is dictated as animal sacrifice. And, okay. and this, I think, we're also on slightly different pages here because as a text scholar, you're not going to talk about how you think, quote-unquote, God was really involved. You're going to talk about how the author presents yeah. God being involved. My question would be, outside of that, do you think when it comes to the move away from, say, human sacrifice and Israelite religion, that God was somehow involved in that, that there was some kind of growing awareness on the part of the, of the people uh, such that they began to recognize that it was God's will not for people to be executed or used, as, uh, used for sacrificial terms, but that the, okay. the poor were meant to be uh, lifted up and right. social justice was meant to prevail, those kinds of things. Is there something of God in that? Or as a text scholar, do you just simply say, I can't speak about that as a tech scholar. I was just going to say no. You don't think God's involved? <laughs> I, I feel know. like we need to differentiate between the texts that we look at and the traditions that we develop and the truth they are trying to express. Okay. And some of what we come across in the texts represent a human search for meaning. And some of it is simply well-situated in its time and its place. I don't actually have an image of God intervening in Israelite consciousness and altering things. Do you have, intervening is a strong word. I, I know, and I, I chose it intentionally. Yeah, and I, what I found in, uh, I'm doing a research project, as you know, on the book of Esther, and what I found is that I think when it comes to reading that text, we need a, we need a term for a term that helps us understand the ways that God might be involved or that God might be influencing, or I guess I would distinguish here, this is where I really put on the, this is where the, 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 the nerd of theology just <laughs> takes the podium. The nerd is strong yes, with you. As people are throwing things at yes. him. But, but this is where I think we need a kind of uh, distinction between soft and maybe soft and hard providence or... Okay. Uh, such that intervention is too strong a word. I mean, the, yeah. the, 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 it's almost as if the distinction between divine action and human response are conflated in that text, that they're completely commingling, such that you can't distinguish what God is doing from what human beings are doing. And I think there's something to Esther in that regard. I guess this is sort of a way of, of, turning the tables and talking about my favorite text. It is. Wait, I have to tell you one thing really quickly, if it'll help with your language before okay. you go there. Yeah. Um, a lot of Jews talk about the text and its ideas being inspired divinely. Yeah, right. Okay. So anyway, is Esther your favorite text? No, but okay. inspired is, I mean, yes, maybe no, sort of, kind of. How's that for a... For a clear, and very clear and response. concise, yeah. And I don't want to. I don't. I, I want to make sure that we finish up with the text you're talking about. I'm good. About. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about your text. I, I think that Esther has become one of my favorite texts in the Hebrew Bible, and you know because you've heard me talk about it ad infinitum, <laughs> no. ad nauseum, all the time. It's just that I think what Esther seems to be quote unquote after is, and that's another way to 
to be a theology nerd is to is to use air quotes when people haven't been using them for 20 years. Oh, wait a minute. I don't get to use air quotes because I'm not a theologian? I didn't know you used air quotes. I use air quotes now and then. You do? Periodically. Do your students ever understand you when you use air yeah, quotes? Yeah, they, well, I don't know. I don't ask them, but now I'm going to. Right. Okay. Yeah. Report okay. back. I will report back. Our next episode, we'll talk okay. about air quotes. This episode, I guess I want to say that that as a book, Esther has become possibly my favorite, but I also love the book of Ecclesiastes, as mm -hmm. you know. Kind of a, a funny story when I started at Queen Anne Lutheran as their pastor. The first Sunday, the kids in Sunday school were doing this exercise where they uh, had to they had to find out what my favorite verse was in the Bible. Ooh. And I thought, oh, this will be easy. 30,000 verses in the Christian Bible, no problem, right? Or is it 30,000 in the Hebrew Bible? Dude, I don't know. You should know these things. I don't. I thought you were good with numbers. I don't know that number. Okay, a lot of verses. Okay, right? damn. And so how do you how do you decide? Well, I thought, okay, I'm a Lutheran pastor. I'm going to go with the verse that most clearly articulates the essence of the Lutheran Protestant Reformation, which is Ephesians 2.8. We are justified by grace, not by works of the law. All of it. Some would even argue reading this text like uh, Daniel Meliora, uh, a theologian in the Christian tradition, will say that uh, even the response itself is a gift from God. So I chose that, but I remember talking with you about that and saying, you know, I really... Part of me wishes I chose uh, Ecclesiastes 1.1, which is, I mean, can you imagine? So the pastor shows up and it's vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that word in Hebrew, I remember learning this years ago, is it means a puff of wind, right? Or, or, or breath. smoke or, or breath. Yeah. yeah. So the, the observation from the, from the teacher of wisdom that life is fleeting. And yeah. I find myself really drawn to passages in the Hebrew Bible that that reflect that, much like you'll be talking about in your series at yeah. my church over the course of Lent. It's going to be an upper. Death and dying from a Jewish perspective. Very, Life very is exciting. fleeting. Everybody sit on that. Right. And I mean, but, but I find that so beautiful in some ways. I find it so tragic and sad in others. But when Job, for example, chapter 14, 1 says, A mortal born of woman, few of days and full of trouble, comes up like a flower and withers, flees like a shadow and does not last. You love the verse uttered by a man at like a really bad place. I do. Yeah. Okay. Because I think, and maybe it's not because of what you described earlier. It, it's not because of the, the narrative's momentum, although I think Job is an incredible narrative. It is. It's because of even in translation where I can't, unlike you, I can't pick up on the, 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 the beauty of the original language here. Even in translation, something of that, a little of that is preserved. And I think it's, I think it's irrespective even of its context, of its literary context, of its point in the story. On its own, it's a beautiful passage. I talked about Ecclesiastes with my therapist. I was going to tell you about this. Yes. Okay. My therapist is badass Buddhist. Okay. And I, um, yes, I'm talking about therapy because yay. Because it was inevitable. Because at some I've been point, in therapy forever. Because at some point in our conversations, we're going to talk about therapy. Yeah. How much medication we're on. Ooh, let's take notes. Let's, let's compare. Notes. Uh, yeah. Those are the big ones for us. I think I'm on yeah. more. I wanted to, to just quickly. Yeah. I wanted to talk about another thing that's been happening to me lately. <laughs> I keep... <laughs> 
I don't know if this is if this is age, but I keep hurting myself. I keep running into things. <laughs> uh, yesterday, I somehow I bumped my elbow on the on the medicine cabinet in my in my bathroom. Do you realize how much you have to go out of your way to do something I, like that? Yes, that's. And I I keep misjudging where things are peripherally. I, I can't function the same way, and I'm hurting myself all the time. And I think, oh my gosh. Am I even going to make it to to, to to wherever midlife is? I guess I don't know if I've crossed midlife at this point. And technically, if I didn't make it to where I cross, then it's really not midlife at all. Midlife okay, you're going too far. Back into my 20s. You're going. You're going too but far. But anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have that issue as well? Listen, we are you not. You probably had that since you were a kid. Okay. Well, first of all, we are not old enough to say it's age. We're not. No. We but are my not. doctor says this. My doctor says uh, the other day. I, I love this. He goes, as we age, and I'm thinking. Uh, sir, yeah. that comment applies to any point exactly. on the timeline of life. I aged from 12 to 14. That's therefore, right. Yeah. Um, but you must yeah. have been doing this from the beginning. I mean, yes, you, I have you, a spatial relations disorder. Did right. you not know that? And I, also you play chicken while you drive. I No, I just sometimes watch TV while I drive. You watch TV. While you just—I you have a little thing that sits oh up in the in the air vent, and I stick my phone there and put on a show. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we finally <laughs> discovered why B's driving no. record is what it is. No, but I have to tell you, I have a spatial relations disorder. I'm one of those people that can't tell exactly where the door frame is, so I constantly run into door frames and like bounce off of them. Do you think I have a spatial relations yes. disorder? Please, it would be so great to name this. Yeah, that's all I want to do. I, all is you name decide. My, my I walk. My constantly hit my feet against things but you've had it your whole life do you yeah. think a spatial relationship oh what an interesting slip, slip huh? yeah a spatial what is it relation disorder? no spatial relations disorder spatial relations disorder fascinating speaking of therapy right I yeah, wish yeah i had a psychoanalyst who could help me through that i one. do not buy freudian psychoanalysis anyway i think word association is a at least a fun game. That's but interesting. I, but I, I find myself wondering if a spatial relations disorder could actually develop over the course of time rather than, rather than, as in your case, essentially be there from, from the birth. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's another thing we should research. But wait, can I say something about Ecclesiastes and my yes. therapist before you pick oh, yes. up? Okay. Um, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes and I realized I think I had it wrong. When he talks about the transience of everything... He, he isn't saying, therefore, it's not worthwhile. Therefore, it is um, not something to even cling to. It, it is beautiful, and it's precious, and it will leave. You read Ecclesiastes other than that, otherwise? The word vanity right. really, seems to suggest. Really, as a, as a primary translation, I struggle a lot with um, impermanence. I struggle a lot with too. impermanence because yeah. of, well, mostly because of my kids. And the degree to which I cling to them, um, and it was I feel just the same way about my parents. Do you? Yeah. And as 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 we age, I find that mature the the reality of impermanence. Mm-hmm. It's always I can remember being in my twenties, thinking about mortality, and saying to myself, "Don't ever be one of those people who says you only think about mortality as you get older." It was something on my mind as a young adult. But I think now, uh, 20 whatever years later, I find myself thinking a lot about mortality and impermanence. Mm-hmm. And I think about it as you do in relation to the people to I people. love. Yeah. And it's, it's such a hard thing to, to accept. We have to accept it. It's like the weather you said. It happens to us all. Yeah. But 
So you think about that with respect to your children? Yes, but I, I said to my therapist, what if, what if I really understand what Kohelet is saying about... Kohelet means... Uh, it's the Hebrew name of the book. For teacher, right? A convener. Convener. Yeah. <clears throat> I know that's weird, right? It is weird. That just ruined my whole understanding of Ecclesiastes. Okay, well, just don't tell anyone. Right. Keep going it'll with what you... It'll be our secret on this podcast. It'll be our this secret. This and our, like, two listeners. That's right. <laughs> our two listeners. We've also, in this, in this episode, divulged a lot of material that probably should be secret, like these driving records. I really that, should uh, probably not watch TV when I'm driving. So, um, however, wait. I'm very cognizant of time, and I want to make sure you get through saying some things about your favorite texts. Okay, so when it comes to my favorite texts, it would be increasingly so Esther because of the theology implied that God's action and ours is to the point, is to a point almost indistinguishable in the text. Mm -hmm. And I think what, I think what Esther does is, is almost from the sidelines. It, uh, it, it demands a hearing, and the hearing is that not much can be heard when it comes to the divine voice, to divine action. And I think, uh, you know, Leon uh, Wieseltier, mm -hmm. if I'm saying that correctly, talks about Esther. Esther could only be possible, he says, in a, in a post-revelatory or post-revelation world. And I think to myself, Richard Elliott Friedman has pointed this out too, my favorite Hebrew Bible scholar, that that there's something about the context in Esther that oddly anticipates our own. That these are uh, Jewish men and women of Persia, uh, Israelites of Persia, who are separated from the land, who are separated from the temple, who are separated from the rest of their people after the exile, and are trying to forge their, their way and, and make sense even of, their, of, of an experience of God that has lost its, its power. Uh, as as these people navigate through through an empire of which they're subjects, so I, I find that there's something really alluring about Esther because I think in many ways it might help us understand our own <clears throat> reality that that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, describes as a world come of age, a world after God, and I know that's not the case in certain segments of the United States, and it's certainly not the case across the world where. Christianity, for example, is growing exponentially in so-called third world countries. But for the experience of people living in the Pacific Northwest, which is one of the most unchurched regions right. of the country, I think Esther has something to say. And so I, I kind of happily stumbled upon Esther, and I'm, and I'm glad I did as a book. My favorite verses are the ones we were talking about earlier, the, the, the verses of the... the the mortality verses, mm -hmm. and I and I appreciate them in part. I have a melancholic spirit. In case uh, in case you don't know, I know you do, but in case the world doesn't know, I am given to that. That's my dis that's my mm -hmm. disposition sometimes. But I'm I find that in the this talk of life as fleeting, exactly what you said earlier that there's a beauty to it, mm -hmm. and I I think that. The poetry of the Hebrew Bible, and again, this would be one of my bucket list items. I'd love to memorize all the constellations in the sky, and I'd love to learn the Hebrew language. Because I think it would be incredible 
to be able to read this poetry in its original, in its original letters and, and form. So there's something really beautiful there. And I, I find that, for example, in some of the Psalms, I see it in, in Ecclesiastes, I see it in Job. There's this profound awareness that life is bracketed. Mm -hmm. And it's not an awareness that simply leads to despair. It's, a, it's an awareness that leads to appreciation and to a kind of recognition that, wow, what a, what a gift given how fleeting it is. Although Job says, even if I go down to Sheol, you'll find me there. And it's not a happy thing. It's not a God comforting me. It's you'll torture me even after I die sort of a thing. Um, but that's, you know, where he's at, at that point. I agree with you very much about Esther being relevant. Um, in fact, I violate my own understanding of the word Jew. And when I teach it, I call them Jews. It just because feels very contemporary to me. It, does the text itself identify? It says, I mean, it says Mordecai is a Jew in the translation. Well, it's, which could be Judean, because these are the people that were sent into exile after the Babylonians conquered the region, and then the Persians took over. So it could be Judean. I actually do translate it as Jew, even though I don't think that word is really fully relevant quite yet. But in that story, it just makes sense for them to be seen as Jews. I'm, I'm realizing we started the conversation with a joke that we made outside the, the recording, and that is that we would start with, which testament is your favorite? Right. And in your case, obviously, it's a joke. The New Testament is not going to be your favorite as a person who is not Christian. And I don't know much about it. But in my case, I'm realizing that all my favorite passages are in the Old Testament. Good job. And I, and I know exactly why. It's because yeah. of what we're, what we're talking about. I think the, that's where I find the poets. Mm. And I think the, I think I love the prophets. I, uh, and I think as a Christian, Obviously, there is, there is something about Christ, mm -hmm. uh, something of God in Christ for me that I can't seem to shake, but it's the poetry that draws me the most. And it's the, and, and there's poetry in the, in the New Testament as well. Mm -hmm. It's just not as prevalent, but there is talk. I think it's in the book of James of, of, of life as a kind of, as the breath on, uh, breath on a, on a mirror. Yeah. Um, and Paul, even though Paul wasn't a, wasn't, he was trained in rhetoric, but he, he brags about how he doesn't, doesn't use rhetoric to convey the message, the gospel, because uh, if he did, it would win people over, not because of the content, but because of the form. And <clears throat> I, I think, nevertheless, that there are certain passages, even in Paul's letters, and here we're talking about a very different genre, obviously, than Ecclesiastes, which is skeptical wisdom literature. Right. We're talking about personal correspondence that right. happens to become Matt Whitlock, our colleague, my former colleague and your present colleague at Seattle University, makes the point that Paul is the most widely read author in Western civilization. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me. Can you imagine your personal correspondence being the, the correspondence that would be read by more people on God, this, I hope not. this culture of rights? My emails, my text messages. I tell this to my students. And I'm like, I want you to imagine somebody reading your text messages 2,000 years from now and what they're going to make out of who we were 
And they're all embarrassed, right? Because it's like all eggplant emojis and stuff like that, right? It's not... Anyway. Well, and fortunately for Paul, eggplant emojis weren't at his disposal. You know, because he would surely have um, done something about them, right? Like he surely would have used them. He would have, I'm sure. But I, what I like about, about Paul is that he has these moments in his writing where, where you have a kind of poetic flourish. Yes. And it's, it's beautiful. And I think in Paul it comes, comes up in lists where he'll talk about uh, sleepless nights and... Uh, and imprisonment, and he he uses these different items in long in a long series in First or Second Corinthians. He does it in Romans, and it has such a powerful effect. Yeah, uh, probably the most famous, and I think uh, one of my one of my favorites is Romans eight thirty eight to thirty nine. That's Paul's. It's probably the 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 uh, last letter that we have that Paul wrote. It's his quote-unquote mature theology it's and it's uh it's there that paul says for i am convinced that neither height nor depth nor things present nor things to come uh and he lists a whole series of things he he's convinced he says that none of those things can separate us from the love of god in christ wow and there's there's just such a beauty and a cadence to the way that he pairs these various opposites there's a kind of interplay and and uh, it arrives at this final conclusion which is is beautifully stated so my my favorite verses are those that are that reflect that kind of beauty you are a literature lover i think so yeah Yeah. i mean i i did major in it in college there you go yeah and yeah and so which is what i appreciated about what you said at the beginning uh, when it comes to the momentum of the narrative in genesis 22. i think there's some masterful writing in the bible and i think it's important to notice it I agree. And that's probably a good place to end, given uh, that's where we started. And given that we're going to go see a movie now. We are. So we'll report back next episode. It won't be scary.